Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, he wanted to go to the Capitol on January 6th, Donald Trump tells the Washington Post, but Secret Service wouldn't let him. He hated the violence and was furious Nancy Pelosi wasn't putting a stop to it. He doesn't remember getting many phone calls, and he didn't destroy any call logs. Trump would lie on credit when he could tell the truth for cash. So why are so many pundits invested in suggesting that he can never be legally brought to account? We'll hear from Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, about the stunning new ruling that shows a way to do just that. Also on the show, polls show 68% of people in the country think marijuana should be legal, the highest number since polling started in 1969. The tide is turning. It's just a matter of who we let be lifted by it and who we allow to drown. Should some people get rich selling weed while others rot in jail for it? That's what the Moore Act that just passed the House tries to address. We'll catch up with an expert on marijuana legislation, Mike Lazuski from the Enact Group. That's coming up, but first a look back at some recent press. The confirmation of Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court occasions a look back at some of the media coverage of her hearings. While media reported GOP senators' grandstanding harassment and aggressive repetition of baseless accusations, their need to always be signaling balance led to some mealy-mouthed avoidance tactics like C-SPAN's tweet describing, quote, heated exchange between Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson and Senator Lindsey Graham on child pornography sentencing, close quote, when anybody watching would tell you that only one side was heated. Or this piece from the Washington Post in late March that begins, quote, As Ketanji Brown-Jackson this week sat through several days of hearings in her bid to join the Supreme Court, Democrats proudly took turns reflecting on the historic example she sets and the need for the judiciary, much like other institutions, to better reflect the diverse public it serves. At the same time, some Republicans repeatedly suggested that the first black female high court nominee was soft on crime and questioned whether critical race theory, an academic framework centered on the idea that racism is systemic, influenced her thinking as a judge. Close quote. You might think this says, Democrats noted correctly that there are no black women on the Supreme Court, while Republicans showed part of the reason why by inappropriately linking black people to crime and to their own weaponized rendering of an intellectual framework. For the Post, though, quote, the disparate treatment underscored the extent to which race hovered over the four grueling days of Jackson's confirmation hearings this week, serving as both a source of ebullience for the judge's supporters and an avenue for contentious questions that sometimes carried racial undertones. Close quote. So it wasn't a series of racist attacks on a black woman in an attempt to deny her advancement. It was race itself hovering, both over those who want to see an end to decades of discriminatory exclusion and those who don't. And when Marsha Blackburn asked, is it your personal hidden agenda to incorporate critical race theory into our legal system? And Ted Cruz demanded to know if she thought babies were racist. 
Well, those would be some of those contentious questions with racial undertones, leading one to wonder what a racial overtone would look like. The word racist does appear in the piece in Senators' own descriptions of the 1619 Project and critical race theory, and in reporters' own statement that, quote, Republican senators who would go on to question Jackson most aggressively acknowledged that they could be perceived as racist in doing so, close quote. This sort of coverage may not come off as mean-spirited, but its purposive timidity and awkward even-handedness ultimately provide cover for ideas and tactics that should be ruthlessly exposed for what they are. The time to talk about race hovering over things is long past. And Counterspin mourns the death of Eric Bollert, who died in a bike accident this week at the age of 57. Bollert was a smart media observer and critic, most recently at his own site, newsletter Press Run, before that at Salon, Rolling Stone, and Media Matters. You can find several interviews with Eric Bollert in the Counterspin archives, including one from back in 2006 on his book, Lapdogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush. He'll be missed. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. When a judge, having seen confidential documents, declares the former president likely committed federal crimes in an unprecedented effort to overturn a Democratic election, how would you, as a media outlet, alert readers to the remarkable development? If you're USA Today, you choose the headline, The January 6th Committee Got a Boost from a Ruling on a Confidential Memo, and describe the judge's ruling as, first of all, quote, a win for the committee, close quote. Some media's insistence on treating the crisis represented by the January 6th coup attempt and the ongoing Stop the Steal disinformation campaign as a beltway spat is bizarre and disheartening. Fortunately, many others concur strongly with the thought expressed by U.S. District Judge David Carter in that ruling, quote, if the country does not commit to investigating and pursuing accountability for those responsible, the court fears January 6th will repeat itself, close quote. Marjorie Cohn is Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. She's author of a number of books, including Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. She joins us by phone from San Diego. Welcome back to Counterspin, Marjorie Cohn. Thanks for having me, Janine. Okay, this 44-page ruling from a federal judge, David Carter, was about whether Donald Trump's lawyer, John Eastman, an architect of January 6th, had to hand over documents to the House committee investigating it. Eastman said they were protected by attorney-client privilege, and it was in explaining why they should not be that Judge Carter provided what I've seen you and others describe as a roadmap to bringing charges against Trump and potentially others as well. Is that correct? That is correct, Janine. Eastman was claiming that he and Trump shared the attorney-client privilege and also what is called the work product doctrine, which would shield them concealing, basically, communications that had to do with 
criminal activity on January 6th. Well, there is a crime fraud exception to both the work product doctrine and the attorney-client privilege, and that basically says that if the communications are made in furtherance of illegality, illegal activity, then the attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine don't apply, and he has to turn over the documents. And in discussing that issue, Judge Carter found that it was more likely than not that Trump attempted obstruction of an official proceeding and that Trump and John Eastman, his lawyer, committed conspiracy to defraud the United States. Those are two federal crimes. And even though Judge Carter was dealing with a civil case, as you said, about whether John Eastman should turn over documents to the January 6th Committee of the House of Representatives, his finding that it was more likely than not that Trump committed these two federal crimes is basically equivalent to a finding of probable cause in a criminal case, probable cause to support an arrest. So my feeling is that Judge Carter's 44-page opinion provides a roadmap for the Department of Justice to bring criminal charges against Trump and Eastman. Although the January 6th committee can make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. It can't actually bring criminal charges. And there is a federal grand jury that is investigating the January 6th events and possible culprits, and that the Department of Justice could go to the grand jury and say, we want an indictment of Trump for these two federal crimes. Well, I can see folks maybe getting hung up on the phrase from the ruling, more likely than not. Trump is more likely than not to have committed these federal crimes. But that has a particular legal meaning. That's all he can say at this point, isn't it? It is. In a civil case, the burden of proof is a preponderance of the evidence, or more likely than not, or 51 percent. In a criminal case, the burden of proving guilt prosecutor has the burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But that's once you get to the trial stage. But in a criminal case, in order to have a lawful arrest or an indictment, the prosecutor has to show probable cause to believe that the suspect committed the crime. And probable cause is basically equivalent to more likely than not, which was what Judge Carter found. And so There is plenty of evidence for the Department of Justice to request an indictment for the arrest of Trump and Eastman for federal crimes in a criminal case, basically. Well, let me draw you out a little bit on the obstruction of an official proceeding, because one of the things that's interesting about that charge is that it requires corruption, not just that the individual obstructed, influenced, or impeded, or attempted to an official proceeding, but that they did so corruptly. And I think that hangs a lot of people up because they say, you don't know what their intent was. You can't prove corruption there. But but Carter says, mm, yeah, we have other things that we can line up to indicate what he called a corrupt mindset. Yes. And keep in mind that in a criminal case, It's rare that the defendant says, I had a guilty mind, I acted corruptly, I intended to kill the victim. And that would be direct evidence. But there is a thing called circumstantial evidence, 
And that is just as strong and reliable in a criminal case as direct evidence. And what Carter concluded, basically, was that Trump, Trump knew that what he was doing was illegal. And Carter cited many, many opinions of federal court judges finding that there was no voter fraud. He cited the agency who is tasked with determining whether there's voter fraud, who concluded, no, there was no voter fraud. And Trump certainly knew that the plan was illegal. This is Eastman's plan to get Pence, Mike Pence, to either reject the electors or delay the vote count. That was the plan that constituted obstruction or attempted obstruction of an official proceeding. And then the conspiracy to defraud the United States was the agreement between Trump and Eastman to carry out this nefarious plan, which Judge Carter said both Trump and Eastman knew was illegal. I think he also cited that call to Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger when Trump asked him to find votes as showing that he was more interested in overturning the election and not actually investigating it. I've gotten frustrated by a tone in some reporting that suggests that we're probably never going to get anything to stick with Donald Trump. And so we shouldn't get excited about it. And I guess the implication is without a assured conviction, the whole thing is a waste of time or a distraction or worst of all, it looks partisan. But I mean, gosh, if, if this system can't determine Donald Trump guilty of anything at all, then I would think exploring why not would be journalists' job number one. Well, I agree with you, Janine, and I think perhaps 30 percent of the people in this country are going to scream and yell if Trump is charged with a criminal offense, but the majority of people are in favor of the rule of law and holding Trump's feet to the fire. And the evidence of his criminal wrongdoing is legion. On Thursday, the attorney general of New York asked a state judge to hold Trump in civil contempt for failing to comply with a court order in an investigation about whether the Trump organization unlawfully falsified the value of assets for financial gain. And Trump's wrongdoing is out there for all to see. It has been documented for more than a year, really. And bringing criminal charges when there is probable cause to believe that Trump committed federal crimes is what the law requires. When I was a criminal defense attorney, I would have loved to hear people say, well, the prosecutor isn't assured of a conviction, so shouldn't bring criminal charges against your client. That's not how our system works. The criminal justice system, if it is indeed just, means that when there's probable cause that a crime has been committed, then the prosecutor should bring criminal charges, and then it's up to a jury to decide whether that defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you have any thoughts for journalists who are going to be taking this up? Uh, We didn't even get to the 10 minutes or however many minutes of tape that no one can find or the papers taken out of the White House or shoved down the toilet. I mean, and yet it doesn't seem to be building to the story of the scale 
that it needs to, at least from my view. It's not that it's not being covered. There are stories here and stories there and stories virtually every day. But I'm not sure that it's getting the push, giving the the, the gravity, maybe is the word, that it needs. But uh, let me ask you, advice to journalists who are going to be covering this one way or another over the next weeks, months? I would pay attention to the White House telephone logs that the select committee has received showing a gap of seven hours and 37 minutes on January 6th, which was the time that the pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol and committed the insurrection or the attempted insurrection. Trump initiated at least one call on a White House phone that was not recorded on the call log. Keep in mind that Richard Nixon resigned in infamy because of 18 minutes missing from the White House tapes about the Watergate scandal. And it may well be that the bigger story here is Trump's cover-up of his criminal activity, just like during the Watergate scandal. I think it's important to pay attention to what the select committee uncovers. I think they've called or interviewed 800 witnesses Most recently, uh, Ivanka Trump and uh, Jared Kushner. We'll see what happens. All right, then. We've been speaking with Marjorie Cohn. She's Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and author of, among other titles, Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues from Olive Branch Press. You can find her work on Truthout, and you can also keep up with it at MarjorieCohn.com. Marjorie Cohn, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me, Janine. The image of marijuana a visitor might get from U.S. media and popular culture is that the stigma is gone. Tons of people admit to using or having used it, and it's practically legal, right? It's true access to medical marijuana is now legal in most states, and 18 states plus D.C. and Guam now allow access for adult use. But according to Drug Policy Alliance, marijuana laws are still responsible for some half a million arrests a year, with, no points for guessing, black and brown people disproportionately impacted. Indeed, black people are almost four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, despite equal rates of consumption. And it's a leading cause of, or excuse for, deportation. Marijuana prohibition continues to ruin lives and livelihoods, which is why if the Moore Act that recently passed in the House had only descheduled marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act, it would be a lot less meaningful. We're joined now by a leading expert on marijuana laws in the U.S. Mike Lazuski is founder and principal at the Enact Group. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Mike Lazuski. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Well, it's being shorthanded everywhere as decriminalizing pot, but the legislation is called the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act for a reason. Could you give listeners a sense of the overall intentions or aims of this bill? They're integrated, aren't they? Yes, it's a real comprehensive approach to marijuana reform. It's built on some bills that were introduced by some of our longtime champions like Earl Blumenauer and Barbara Lee, who have really tried to make sure that the issue of marijuana isn't just about legalization and the industry, but making sure uh, that 
the communities that have been harmed the most by the racially disproportionate impact and enforcement of our marijuana laws are really at the center of our marijuana policy moving forward. So the MORE Act, in addition to ending federal criminalization, it would set up a robust system for expungement. So there would be automatic expungements for certain marijuana offenses at the federal level, and there would also be funding to help effectuate expungements at the state level. A lot of states have begun to do their own expungement efforts, but a lot of times where they run into trouble is there's not enough funding to make sure that they actually take place. So the MORE Act would help it for both federal and state expungements. And then also it would impose a modest tax on the industry. It would start off at 5% at the wholesaler level, and it would gradually work up to about 8%. And that tax revenue would go in part to the expungements, but also to help repair the communities that have been most disproportionately impacted by our enforcement of marijuana laws. So it would fund job training, community services, public health, substance abuse prevention, all sorts of things that communities that have been most harmed by our drug war enforcement where they could use some help. So it's a real comprehensive approach to ending federal marijuana prohibition and taking accountability for the harms that 50 years of marijuana prohibition, actually more, it's 50 years since the Controlled Substances Act went into effect. But our marijuana policy has been largely one of prohibition going back to the early 20th century. Well, as we've said, many states have passed their own laws. You just started, I think, to touch on it. But why is the federal aspect important here? What's different at having this change happen at that level? So it is key that the states are leading on marijuana reform because most of the arrests do happen at the state level. But a lot of the reasons why we hear in states that haven't legalized yet is that it's still illegal federally Mm -hmm. and that as long as it's illegal federally, the powers that be in those states are, are reluctant to move forward. And that's why a lot of the marijuana reforms that you've seen so far, they've been in states that have ballot measures. There's only been a handful of states like Illinois and New York Connecticut that have actually done it through their legislatures. Uh, Virginia is another. And those have all been in recent years. So we're optimistic about the trend moving forward. But many of those states only legalized through their legislature after we passed the MORE Act the first time in the House. Mm -hmm. And that was in the lame duck session in 2020. So we weren't really able to do much after it passed. But we think that the, for lack of a better word, the symbolism of the federal government beginning, Congress beginning to show that it's going to be changing its marijuana policy at some point, has inspired these states to be bolder. So once the federal government legalizes, we would anticipate that many, many more states would follow through with that. Well, this kind of follows on from that because, you know, there is a Senate companion bill that I think originally was introduced by Kamala Harris, right, when she was a senator and had some support from high-profile folks, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker. But the word is right now, no way is this getting through the Senate. And I just wanted to ask, you know, having done this work for some time, why do groups take on efforts where the preliminary math says you won't get through? What are the other gains? Well, the first thing I'll say to that is when we worked on the MORE Act in the House side back in 2019 and 2020, we were told, one, it would never come up for a vote. Two, if it did, we would lose. Mm-hmm. And we got it on the floor and, and we ended up winning. Right. So uh, there is the whole never say never aspect to this. We also recognize the realities of the Senate and that hardly anything is getting passed. But just because there's an uptill challenge there politically, 
We do have Leader Schumer, who's working on his own comprehensive bill with Senators Booker and Wyden, and we expect that to be introduced sometime in the coming weeks. We do have the majority leader backing our comprehensive bill. And so I think we're going to see a lot more progress in the Senate. One thing that this issue has experienced is the House is very well versed on this issue by now. Many House members have meant several votes on marijuana issues. We've either been to their offices or other organizations working on this issue have been to their offices. Just about everyone in the House is well versed on this. The Senate really hasn't had to consider it. And so the introduction of Senator Schumer's comprehensive bill, the Campus Administration and Opportunity Act, when that comes out in a couple of weeks, that's really going to force the Senate to consider this issue like it never had before. So while we may not see a payoff in 2022 in terms of passing a bill, it's a necessary step for us to get there eventually. So we think we're going to see significant progress in the Senate. We may start to see hearings on marijuana in various Senate committees. So I think while we may not get to where we want to end up in 2022, we're going to take several significant steps towards getting to that ultimate goal. Finally, finally, um, does it matter that Biden seems to be opposed, indeed, if not in word? Uh, You know, it would be um, certainly we're we're frustrated with the Biden administration on, on marijuana so far. There was word that uh, there was going to be clemency for uh, marijuana prisoners, that Drug Policy Alliance would like to see everyone with drug offenses to be able to receive clemency. But the, the fact that the, the Biden administration didn't follow through even on just you know marijuana prisoners like they said they would, that's been disappointing. We've seen some other disappointing things from the White House in terms of security clearances. So we know that this isn't the most friendly administration on this issue. But we do think that if we have a bill that's supported by you know, a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and if it was delivered to the president, we have confidence that we could get it in the law. So there are candidates who are better on this issue, but we do think that we can win Biden over. And supported by the majority of the people in the country. Yeah, not, not for nothing, you know, who are meant to be informed. Indeed, right. indeed. Yeah. We've been speaking with Mike Lazuski of the Enact Group. Thank you so much, Mike Lazuski, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. That's also the place to sign up for our newsletter extra or our Action Alert Network. It's also the place to show support for the show if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.